Hello and welcome to Interfilm Recommends, a regular podcast for film club leaders to explore exciting new titles with their clubs. My name's Maria and I'm joined by Joe and Michael. Hello. Hi there. And this is our fifth episode of 2018. In today's secondary theme podcast, we'll be discussing human flow and the death of Starling in our exploration of politics. First up, we'll discuss human flow, which is certificate 12, but we've recommended it for a 14 plus audience on our website. There is some images of real dead bodies in the film, so just be aware of that. Human Flow is a documentary by artist Ai Weiwei about the global refugee crisis of the 21st century. For those who don't know, Ai Weiwei is a Chinese artist and political activist, and he's probably best known politically as a critic of the Chinese government's stance on human rights and democracy, something which you may remember led to his controversial arrest and imprisonment a few years ago, which provoked outrage around the world. He's been called both the most powerful artist in the world and also the most dangerous artist in China. But this documentary sees him attempt to explore the global refugee crisis, and he does this in very striking visual and human terms. Um, It was filmed over the course of a year, and during that process, Ai Weiwei travelled to more than 20 countries, visiting refugee camps, taking in staggeringly dangerous ocean crossings, and really trying to capture both the almost incomprehensible scale of the crisis, but also put a human face on it. In this clip, we hear a representative from the UN Refugee Agency talking about the scale of movement in relation to its impact on Europe and the Greek island of Lesbos in particular. We're here right now on Lesbos Island. This is the point where half a million people, most of them refugees, set foot and entered Europe. And an extraordinary way that people have been coming through. And just the last year alone, over one million have come to Europe through the, through the Mediterranean Sea. And although these are movements that we haven't seen in decades, in fact, it hasn't been since the Second World War that so many have fled and come to Europe, it's still something that we need to consider in the global context where so many millions are actually displaced. I've yet to watch the film, but it sounds incredibly important. How does the film frame the global refugee crisis and what insights do you think it gives? Well, it's not a conventional narrative film and it's actually much more observational in tone and even poetic at times. Um, It's very long, it's well over two hours, but I hope that doesn't put you off because it would work incredibly well, I think, in a club or a classroom setting because that slightly disjointed tone lends itself very easily to being broken up and watched in chunks. And in fact, it may be advantageous in some ways because the film inevitably contains a lot of footage that is necessarily upsetting, particularly for younger people. So I think it may indeed be helpful to stop the film at various points in order to talk about what you've just seen. How much do you have to know um, going into the film? And do you end up with a lot of knowledge by the end of it? You don't need a lot of knowledge going in, I don't think. Um, This is a film all about generating empathy from its audience and helping us to comprehend, you know, what is happening to millions of people on a daily basis. It's very observational in terms, so we don't hear Ai Weiwei comment on what is happening at all or have the benefit of a voiceover, as you would expect in most documentaries. But the film does feature a lot of facts and they kind of stroll along the screens at times, providing statistical and background information. And we do also hear from a number of experts, like in the clip, and human rights organisations, as well as, crucially, I think, displaced people themselves. 
Um, so it really jumps around and we only spend a few minutes in each location, but the cumulative effect, you know, captures a staggering global scale of the crisis. So this isn't a film that is designed to provide answers to what are obviously hugely complicated questions, but what it does seek to do is to raise more of those questions and increase awareness of audiences around the world of the scale of the humanitarian crisis. Yes, it seems from the sounds of it that the film is meant to shock us and really wake us up to the realities that people are experiencing. Um, But it doesn't seem to be sensational. However, the documentary does seem to be made on a large scale, uh, covers a lot of ground. How do you think Ai Weiwei balances the micro and the macro? Well, you're absolutely right. And it is told with a really commendable degree of sensitivity and detachment, I suppose. So to give you some figures, the UN say there are currently more refugees than at any point in our history since World War II, and that's around 65 million people. Um, And this documentary takes us around the world to more than 20 locations. So that includes Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Greece, Turkey, Kenya, Italy and the US. It really goes all around the world. Um, But what the film understands is that the personal is political and vice versa. And despite its scale, it does this incredibly powerful job of putting human faces onto these harrowing stories and understanding that there's an individual behind every life jacket or abandoned backpack we see, for example. Um, What I really admire about it is that it also shows us some remarkably emotive moments of familial or community joy. So there's a very sweet moment where you see a group gathering around to watch funny cat videos on somebody's phone. And these are very ordinary, simple moments of humanity that become all the more powerful in their context, I think. It's also fascinating that this film is made by Ai Weiwei, as he's not only a refugee himself, but he also appears a number of times throughout the film, shooting footage on his iPhone at times, or frequently having conversations with various people he encounters. And what that does is it becomes a very powerful visual motif, where you're seeing the same man appearing in these desperate camps all around the world, And I think that really balances the micro and macro that you're referring to perfectly, given a a sense of a global scale, but doing what film does more powerfully than any other medium, which is to put a human face onto the often incomprehensible and generate that empathy, reminding us that the world's a lot smaller than some people would like us to think it is, and that this is a global problem that affects us all. It sounds like a really amazing film, And from what you've said, it seems particularly effective that the filmmaker himself has gone through similar experiences to these people. So he kind of puts his personal story into the perspective of a global yes. narrative. So. Yes, absolutely. So you don't need to know much about Ai Weiwei to go and mm. watch this film, but if you do, then it, it adds another layer of interest, certainly. So what films would you recommend for clubs and members who watch the film and want to find out more about um, this kind of theme? Well, we have a refugee film list on the site that I would strongly recommend you check out. Uh, Just to pick out a couple of titles from that, um, I would highlight Five Broken Cameras, and that's a documentary about a Palestinian man um, attempting to capture the violence that he's witnessing in his community on a daily basis. Um, Welcome is a drama about a Kurdish teenager attempting to swim the channel in Calais uh, to be reunited with his girlfriend. And This Is Exile is a poignant, slightly shorter documentary about the thoughts and experiences of children and young people caught up in the crisis as they attempt to flee from Syria to neighbouring Lebanon. 
I think the film also has a lot in common with Alain René's Night in Fog, which is an extraordinary documentary about the German concentration camps in World War II. And just finally, to return to Ai Weiwei himself, um, if you are more interested in him, there's a remarkable documentary about his work entitled Ai Weiwei Never Sorry, and that does a fantastic job of capturing the artistic and political work of a remarkable man. Great, thank you, Joe. It sounds like an amazing film. I'm definitely going to check it out after this. Um, next up, we'll be talking to Michael about The Death of Stalin. The Death of Stalin is Certificate 15, and we've recommended it um, suitable for 16 plus audiences. The film has very strong language and also has some brief moments of very strong violence. The film is a dark political satire about the chaos in the Soviet Union following the death of Joseph Stalin in 1953. Yeah, so for just some uh, extra context, this is a film by Armando Iannucci, who is the British satirist uh, who often finds comedy in politics, in fact. From his TV shows like The Thick of It and Veep, to his films uh, such as In the Loop, and he's also uh, the creator of Alan Partridge. So The Death of Stalin is about the power struggle which takes place in the immediate days, hours and even minutes after Stalin's death between the yes-men of his regime, uh, particularly Nikita Khrushchev, played by Steve Buscemi, and the chief of the secret police, Lavrenta Beria. And they both seek to take control of the country following the dictator's death um, resulting in a very funny, almost farcical interpretation of historical events. Uh, this is actually based on a French graphic novel and it certainly doesn't shy away from showing the bloody side of this very dark period in Russia's past. Here's a clip from the beginning of the film. I just need some names. Each name you give me is one less bit of your cut off. Enter. Sorry to interrupt, Comrade Minister. It's Comrade Stalin. Oh, don't worry about him. Those ears are full of blood anyway. Comrade Stalin is very ill. Very ill? Yes. Uh-huh. Do you carry on? Of course. <coughs> Tell them Barrier is on his way. They are to touch nothing. Call no one. Understand? So when I watched the film, I found it quite an uncomfortable experience because all like the majority of the film is really funny, but there's also some very dark moments. Um, could you explain further on how satire is used and why do you think the filmmaker chooses it as a device in the film? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. So on, on the face of it, it's a, a rather comedic interpretation of the fall of Stalin and Russia's subsequent squabble to find a suitable successor, if you like. Um, but it also does have acts of quite savage violence in the background, um, which are jarring and upsetting uh, and, and kind of farcical at the same time. So I think this is a really difficult balancing act for the film to pull off, although in my opinion it does so very convincingly. Um, and your enjoyment probably will depend on how well you think the film manages to do that. Um, I do really like it and I think it does an excellent job of merging the the comedic aspects with the macabre, if you like. Yes, throughout the film, you think that you might be in a lighter moment and then there's always some sound in the background that really will bring you back to the reality of the film and what was happening historically. 
the inclusion of such scenes uh, such as firing squads are I would say necessary because films like this that, that put a comedic slant on historical or political events are often accused of whitewashing to a certain extent and, and, and ignoring that you know dark element or tragic element it owns up to the severity of what's been satirized it's almost a film arguing for free speech and in defense of satire as much as anything else i think that might be precisely why it's quite an audience splitter it touches on a lot of things that um, some people don't think should be made fun of I completely agree, and it seems to be a sort of sense of humour thing. Um, although I do think that's really exciting. Um, films that do that are provocative. Uh, I think this is provocative in, in the right way. And it's great to challenge your students to, you know, discuss and debate the relative merits or failures of, of the film. I think satire can be a really enticing entry point into a subject, um, or it can be a way of providing a really intriguing spin on it. And that's what I think The Death of Stalin does, as far as I'm concerned. So I thought it was very, very funny and very well put together. And it did genuinely make me think more about this point in Russian history. And I'm quite eager to learn more of the truth behind the fiction, if you like. Yes, I have to agree, because also making it funny brings that moment in history and sees how it could be relevant to now. Another point that I found really interesting about the film is how it doesn't seem to have a main character. So throughout the film, we're kind of put into different perspectives, which is also a bit uncomfortable because you don't really know who to trust in the film. Could you talk a bit about the effect of this? Yeah, absolutely. So the plot sees um, Stalin die quite suddenly near the very beginning of the film. And he's got a number of figures who are very close to him, so about half a dozen or so. Um, they've managed to somehow stay alive while supporting him and, and you know, being part of the decision-making process, if you like. When he dies, there's an immediate power struggle to see who will take his place, and this is largely between Khrushchev and Beria. But as you said, it doesn't really have a main character. It's sort of Stalin's story, but he's dead for most of the film. So we find ourselves as an audience in a really interesting position it's it's an ensemble cast with two protagonists, if you like, Khrushchev and Beria, and they each try to drum up their support from the rest of the group so they have enough allies to basically eliminate their opposition. Um, and we can constantly flit and float between the two of them um, as our entry points into the film. I think one of the effects of this, then, is that it unsettles the audience in more ways than one, um, causing viewers to second-guess what they can expect from the film, because we're constantly veering from one character to the next. Um, And we're probably not used to this viewing experience that much. We usually see a story through a particular character's eyes and they take us by the hand um, and we learn as much as they do. Uh, A number of other things contribute to this. So Stalin's death and the subsequent revelations that happen, which I won't say too much about. Um, And even the opening sequence as well. So... The very beginning of this film sees uh, Paddy Considine playing a sound engineer who is recording this concert on the radio, or at least he thinks he is. Uh, and he immediately panics when he finds out that there is no recording of the concert that has happened, uh, but Stalin wants one. So it's a brilliant way of setting the scene, of demonstrating the fear and the influence that Stalin has on the people of, of Russia as a whole. Um, yet it also acts as this kind of red herring because we never return to this scene or the characters um, and we go off in a completely new direction. So I do think the, the film is all, always like making you second guess it. 
Yeah, what do you think this does in terms of the comedy as well? How it interacts, um, that we have all these characters and they're all just as funny as each other. So there's a brilliant ensemble cast in this film, as well as the likes of Steve Buscemi and Simon Russell Beale. You've got Andrew Riseborough, Michael Palin, Jason Isaacs, Paul Whitehouse, and more beyond that. And they're all having an awful lot of fun with the script, which allows them to allows their performances to flourish. Witnessing things from various points of view with the characters continuing to plot against each other is a rather gleeful experience for the viewer and it really adds to this sense of momentum uh, that the film builds with, with constant power shifts taking place. Characters also enter and exit at will, like a Shakespeare play if you like, so no one ever feels safe or fixed in the script. It's a constant guessing game until the end, almost as much as a murder mystery as a political comedy, although in this case we're just guessing who will be the victor and who will stay alive. Yeah, it makes the film really gripping from the beginning to the end, really, because um, you do just want to find out who is responsible and also who wants to take the lead. So what other political satires would you recommend for film clubs who watched the film and really enjoyed it? We actually have a political satire film list on our website. So first of all, we have Election, which is adapted from a novel, which itself is based on true events. And director Alexander Payne forges a black comedy out of the material. Um, It's a film which helped propel Reese Witherspoon into the public consciousness uh, in 1999 when it came out, uh, after her pitch-perfect performance as Tracy Flick. So she plays an apparently flawless student who chooses to run for class president. However, the teacher, played by Matthew Broderick in a very smart piece of casting, does everything possible to stop her winning in a really smart and savvy depiction of politics and high school. Secondly, we have Glengarry Glen Ross, which, um, much like The Death of Stalin, is a really, really fine um, ensemble cast performance and has power struggles at its centre. Adapted from a stage play by David Mamet, it's set in the world of real estate sales. It's about a bunch of guys who have to sell for a living, otherwise they're out of a job. And we witness the desperate lengths that they'll go to in order to survive. It's a really uh, smart film with a very sharp script. And finally, uh, I'd also suggest Dr. Strangelove, which is Stanley Kubrick's timeless tale, Uh, which brilliantly ridicules the perils and pointlessness of war within a a room of squabbling generals and politicians. And it's got a a really great performance, uh, trio performances, I think, from Peter Sellers. Great. Thank you, Michael, for all those recommendations. All of these are actually available on our website for film club leaders and members. Okay, so that is everything for today. Thank you for listening. Do check out our previous podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes, all of which are accompanied by show notes, which link to resources including film guides, film lists, blogs and video content. We'd love to hear your feedback on our podcast. If you have any comments on any of the previous episodes or if you have any suggestions of films and topics we could cover in the future, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter or via email. And if you're interested in primary content, we have a new podcast episode available featuring discussion of Paddington 2. We'll be back with a new episode in June, so tune in then.